But in order for faith to see, hope has to know. Faith sees because hope knows. And because hope knows, faith can see. Paul says, For this reason... I do not cease to give thanks for you, for the reason is I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards one another. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glories, might give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power working toward us who believe. So that's the section that we're working through. We just want to refresh our memory a little bit about where we are at this point. Paul has now turned to this prayer that he's praying for the Ephesian believers, and he's lifting up this prayer that that God would give to them an increased working, an increased measure, if you will, of the Spirit that is theirs in Christ. Verses 13 and 14, he confirmed that the Spirit is theirs and they are in the Spirit. The Spirit has indwelt them as they have heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and believed. Now Paul prays that this same Spirit would be increasingly active in doing his primary work of sanctification, which is the work of illumination. The Spirit of God In dwelling the believer, his primary work of salvation in us is the work of illumination to cause our minds, the eyes of our hearts, so to speak, as Paul says in this passage, to cause us to see more clearly, to perceive more vividly, to understand more fully the blessings and the privileges that are ours in Christ. And by so doing, as we see and perceive and understand the blessings and privileges that are ours in Christ we will therefore increase in love towards Him, love towards one another, faithfulness, and perseverance in our faith. And so all those things are this outcropping, this outworking of the Holy Spirit's illuminating work. And so Paul prays specifically that the Spirit would be active in this way, that the Spirit of God would come to them and grant to them, give to them this increased measure of knowledge, of understanding, of perception. And then he mentions these three specific things, three things which I always kind of struggle. Is it three things or one thing? It's it's really both. But these three specific areas that he asked for the Spirit to be particularly active in, in granting to the Ephesians this perception and this understanding. They are the hope of His calling, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of His power working toward us who believe, or in us who believe. So these three outworkings, these three areas that Paul asked that the Spirit would be particularly working to, per, to increase their perception and understanding in. Last time we were in Ephesians, we began looking at the first phrase, which is the hope of His calling. Now this phrase, the hope of His calling, is really going to serve as the grounds or the basis for all three of these, as we'll begin to see today. But last time we began looking at the hope of His calling, and we began looking at this concept of the calling, the biblical calling, because we saw very clearly that Paul says that the calling is the source, it's the foundation of the hope. 
Chapter 4 and verse 4, he says that this is the hope is from the calling, is of the calling, is owned or possessed by the calling. So this calling is the ground, is the foundation, is the basis for the hope, which means for us that the hope can be no firm, no, no more firm or secure or trustworthy than is the calling. So we needed to, to start there to understand what Paul meant by this calling. And we saw that the scriptures teach that there are two types of biblical callings. One is this general invitation that God says is to be issued to all people. The invitation is to turn from your sins, repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus. And if you do, you will be saved. And God says that is an invitation that's a genuine, authentic invitation that is to be given to all people. But then within that, there is this powerful calling. There's this summons. There's this effectual calling that comes to the sheep. And that effectual calling quickens our hearts. It activates our understanding. It causes us to see the Savior. And seeing Him, we believe and then we choose Him. We turn from our sins and we turn to Him. And so this effectual calling we saw is a work of God. In fact, the Scriptures told us clearly that it's a work that He does before creating the world. It's, a, it's His calling. It's the hope of His calling, not our calling. So we saw that this calling is no less firm and no less secure than God Himself. And so that gives us the most firm, the most secure of all foundations to begin looking at the hope, which will be the foundation for everything else in the passage. And that is so secure that we can say literally that if the calling were to fail, then God Himself were to fail. That's how sure this calling is. So now as having established that, we'll turn now to begin looking at this concept of hope. So our text for today will be, once again, the hope of His calling. Let's pause and let's ask the Spirit's help once again to discern His Word. We pray, Holy Father, that You the creator of all things, the God who is above all and in all, we pray, Lord, that you would send in a great powerful way your spirit, the working of Holy Spirit to come to us in a way that is great and powerful and illumining in our hearts. We turn this morning to a truth that comes to us in your word that is not the easiest truth to understand. And so we require your work We require your activity to grant to us that we may understand supernatural truths. We pray you would do this for the glory of your Son, for His honor, for His praise, for He is due all honor and praise. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work in your people this morning. Cause us to see your truth in your word for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we turn to this topic of biblical hope, The picture that we need to start with in our minds is this. It's the picture of standing at the base of Mount Everest and looking up at this unspeakably massive mountain that the peak is so high that the peak goes past the clouds. The base is so large that you literally can't see around it. This massive peak, this Mount Everest type peak, and this Mount Everest peak represents for us today the Mount Everest of the biblical truth of hope. So as we begin today, it's like we begin climbing up this incredible peak, this Mount Everest of biblical truth with me as the, the guide. What an uh, intimidating sort of knee-knocking thing to think that I 
now need to God's need to lead God's people up this peak of understanding this massive truth of biblical hope. But that's what we face this morning. The, the truth of biblical hope is one of the grandest, greatest, most comprehensive truths that come to us in the Bible. And it is one of the most important for us to understand. If we don't understand biblical hope, then we miss a great deal of what God has for us in His Scriptures. So we really need to endeavor to understand the truth of biblical hope as it comes to us in the Scriptures this morning. So that's what the task that faces us. We'll have to break this into manageable pieces. So we'll be talking about hope for a few Sundays to come. But we begin talking about this idea of biblical hope just by maybe laying down a couple of starting blocks. And I'm just going to switch metaphors up on us now. I know we're talking about climbing a mountain. Now we're going to talk about running a race. So you know how the starting blocks are, the racers, the runners get down and they put their feet in the two starting blocks and those starting blocks do nothing but just help them sort of lunge forward at the beginning. So let's put down a couple of starting blocks for us to put our feet in and kind of get a good firm grasp to launch us forward as we begin this climb. And those starting blocks are this, just to think about a little bit about the nature of biblical hope the eternal nature of biblical hope. Look at, uh, in your notes at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So we're familiar with that passage. The whole chapter there is about biblical love. But Paul sums that up by saying there's three. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. Now, we won't go into the reasons why Paul's saying the greatest of those three is love. But faith and hope are sort of sectioned off in their own way. And they all three abide. They're all three eternal in their own sense, in their own way. But notice the relationship between hope and faith and the relationship between hope and love. Hope is the foundation for both of those. Hope is the source. It's the basis for both faith and love. Hope is inherently intellectual. Hope has to do with knowledge. Hope has to do with understanding. Hope has to do with mental activities. Hope has to do with perception. And hope then gives birth to faith or gives a launching to faith because faith needs to see. There's no such thing as blind faith. You know, people sometimes talk about blind faith and and we've heard it said that Christians just have blind faith. We don't have blind faith. There's no such thing as blind faith that's biblical faith. Biblical faith sees. It just sees with supernatural eyes. It has perception that's supernatural perception. So there's no such thing as a biblical faith that's a blind faith. But in order for faith to see, hope has to know. Faith sees because hope knows. And because hope knows... Faith can see. And because hope knows, love can feel. Hope is like the basis for both of those. It's inherently based in the intellectual. It's inherently based in what God gives to us through our minds. Remember that passage, Romans 12, 2. Don't be transformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what God gives to us through the renewing of our mind, what we can know and perceive That is the basis of biblical 
hope. And being something that's inherently mental or intellectual or knowledge-based, it therefore is the premier area in which the Holy Spirit's work of illumination functions. Because hope is based on knowing, perceiving. As we'll see as this unfolds, hope is based on knowing and perceiving. It therefore is the primary means or the, or the category or area of our spiritual lives in which the Holy Spirit, His activity of illumination, can function to its greatest effect. Because by illumining our hope, our hope then gives birth to faith or strengthens faith, and our hope then strengthens or gives birth to more love. So this type of hope really can be seen as the dividing line. Either hope is something we possess, meaning that we would then possess eternal life, or we don't possess it. It's what made the difference between the Ephesians before Paul brings the gospel there to them. In chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul says, and before you were without Christ and without hope in the world. Or to the Thessalonians, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as others who do not have hope. So this type of hope is the dividing line. It's the difference maker, so to speak. And so Paul's desire, his primary desire, in fact, this, this could be the real theme or the mantra of the whole letter. His desire is that the Holy Spirit would work in his illuminating capacity to cause their hope, their perception of their hope, their understanding, their grasp to be deeper and fuller and more complete and thereby giving birth in their lives to all kinds of spiritual offspring. So that's just kind of a a starting block. To begin thinking well about the concept of biblical hope, we begin by recognizing its intellectual capacity, its mental, its knowledge, And it is the fountain, the source of other biblical characteristics, of other characteristics of faith and life. And it is the area in which the Spirit is primarily active and it is what Paul is primarily praying for. So to begin thinking about biblical hope, the place to start is, of course, the Old Testament. As we know with most biblical truths, in fact, probably all biblical truths we could say, they all begin in the Old Testament as something that is more vague and less defined and less developed. And then the New Testament will take those and blossom them into fullness and to complete fruitfulness. We can see this in in many other biblical truths that the Old Testament will oftentimes plant seeds and then the New Testament will take those seeds and grow them to full fruition and full blossoming and full fruitfulness in our souls. And so this is true also for the truth of biblical hope. If we begin by looking to the Old Testament and asking ourselves, what was biblical hope in the Old Testament? We would see that it's something quite straightforward and quite simple. Biblical hope in the Old Testament was hope in Yahweh. Hope in Yahweh, hope in the living God. That was the extent, most of the extent of what biblical true hope was. That mostly centered on hope in this life. Those who hoped in Yahweh, those who hoped in the living God, were hoping in the right thing. Those who were not hoping in the living God were hoping in the wrong thing. And there was a distinct separation there. But this comes through 
very frequently in the Psalter, in places like Psalm 71 and verse 5, For you, O Lord, are my hope and my trust. Psalm 131 and verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forevermore. So we see this language in the Psalter a lot. Those were two instances in which we see that specific word hope. But we see the concept in many places in the Psalter. Things like waiting on the Lord or the Lord is my rock. He is my refuge. He is my strong tower. He is my place of safety. Symbolic symbolic pictures, metaphors in the Old Testament and the wisdom literature as well that comes to us to speak to us of a hope in God that is quite simple and straightforward. Yahweh is the hope. Now that hope was primarily a hope that was thought of in this life only because as I know that all of us are aware, the Old Testament has virtually almost nothing to say about the next life. If you want to search your Old Testaments for a theology about the next life, you'll find very, very little in your Old Testaments because it's only mentioned in passing a few on a few instances. And so this hope relates primarily to this life. If we hope in Yahweh, if we hope in the living God, that He will deliver us. He will be our strong shield against our enemies. He will be our rock and our fortress. But it primarily focused on this life in the here and now. There's a few instances, like for example, probably the best known is Job chapter 19 in which Job says that I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's probably the clearest Old Testament reference of what comes after this life. And Job, you can see in that context, he doesn't, again, use the word hope, but you can clearly see that he has a hope in the living God, his Redeemer, And he believes that that hope will not only be the right hope for this life, but also be the right hope for what comes after this life. So we see a little bit of that. We also see that this hope is tied very closely and intrinsically knit together with the seed of Abraham that is to come. The true son of David, the true king of Israel that is to come, the the son of David who will sit on the throne forever. Israel's hope is intrinsically tied up with the seed of Abraham that is to come. Now, that's basically the extent of biblical hope in the Old Testament. Again, not a whole lot of depth there. Yahweh is the right place to put your hope in this life. He's your shield, your strong fortress. He is your safety. Hope in God. Now, as we cross over to the New Testament, we see... Some of the themes continue, of course. The theme that, that there's this contrast. There's, there's the idea of hoping in the right thing and hoping in the wrong thing. For example, what we see in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. So there's this contrast between trusting in the living God and trusting in false things like horses or chariots. We see that same sort of thing in the New Testament. The words of Jesus in John chapter 5, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So Moses, God's mouthpiece, God's mediator, he still is the wrong place to put your hope. In fact, he's so wrong of a place to put your hope that Jesus says that if you hope in Moses, even he will be your accuser when you come before the judgment because he's not the place to put your trust. So putting your trust or your hope in Moses 
is the same thing as Psalm 20, verses 7. That picture of putting your trust in horses and chariots is putting your trust in something other or putting your hope in something other than the living God. 